Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Personal Capital. With Personal Capital, you'll finally be able to see all your accounts in one place and get a clear view of everything you own. To get your free account today, go to personalcapital.com slash smart people. Again, personalcapital.com slash smart people. Personal Capital, less fees, more Gs. A podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hey, and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. I'm Chris Dem. And I'm John Rojas. And we are still riding high on the wave of recently being number one in education on iTunes. We ranked as high as, what, 19, I think? I think we hit 19. 19 yep. overall. So that was awesome. Uh, we were featured on the front. You might be new to the show. If you are, thanks for joining. If you want to reach out to us, give us your thoughts, feedback, let us know. Smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. Or just go to the website, smartpeoplepodcast.com. There's Contact Us. You can check out deals from our sponsors, past guests, which have been incredible, all that. So we are glad you are joining us. Let's talk about the amazing episode today. We interviewed Kevin Roos, and you may have seen him. He's been all over the place. I think he was on The Daily Show, wasn't he? I mean, he was on everything. The Daily Show, Colbert Report, all the shows. Because his most recent book is pretty awesome. It's called Young Money, Inside the Hidden World of Wall Street's Post-Crash Recruits. And it was just a fascinating tale that hit hit home for you and I, right, John? Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating because nobody's ever been able to penetrate that secret society, if you will. And he was able to do so and write about it. It was absolutely unbelievable. So we're going to go ahead and just turn it over to Kevin rather than tell you everything he's going to say. Uh, just to give you a little background, Kevin is a writer at New York Magazine. He covers business and technology for that magazine and the Daily Intelligencer blog. He used to work at the New York Times where he covered Wall Street and the culture of finance. So that kind of gives you an idea of his background. 
And if you want to find out more about him, head over to kevinroos.com. So we're going to turn it over. Thanks for joining Smart People Podcast. Let us know what you think. Hope you enjoy. Kevin Roos. Well, Kevin, thanks so much again for being on the show. Your newest book, Young Money, Inside the Hidden World of Wall Street's Post-Crash Recruits, is phenomenal for so many reasons. I think, A, we have this fascination with Wall Street as a culture, and B, you don't just talk about, hey, guys, there's a bunch of rich people. You go even more in-depth on what the financial crash has done to Wall Street in general. So I want to get your take on first what is our obsession with Wall Street? Why do people love this stuff? Well, I think it's part voyeurism and part sort of import, sort of actual importance. I mean, obviously, as movies like The Wolf of Wall Street have shown, there's a lot of sort of comedic value and, and sort of just gawking value um, in looking at the lives of these people who live, you know, fabulously in comparison to you know normal people and. Uh, and I think there's also an element to which, you know, we learned in 2008 that this stuff isn't just a separate world that's so far removed from everything that we belong to. I mean, there's a there's a real ripple effect there. So I think people are fascinated both for reasons that have to do with like their 401ks and uh, and their sort of desire to see, you know, rich people behaving badly. Yeah, I guess it is kind of like the real world of the East Coast, I think, right? Is it like, I mean, would you like make it say it's the equivalent of kind of Hollywood for math or money? I don't, I don't know. Well, it used to be. I mean, I think that part of what I tried to, you know, why I wanted to write this book was that I had a sense that there was something, there was some space between the sort of popular image of Wall Street and the reality. And so I wanted to sort of, explore that space and see, you know, how big it was and, and, and how different it was. And I actually don't think that, I mean, Wall Street today would make a very good reality show. I mean, it's made a, a ton of good movies have been made about what happens on Wall Street. But if you actually put a camera inside like Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan, I imagine that it would be one of the dullest shows ever produced um, <laughs> for TV, just because it's not this like high-flying um, you know, private jet uh, existence, especially for people at the bottom of the food chain. Like they are working a ton of hours. They're doing incredibly menial, boring work, and um, they're all getting depressed and burned out. It's not exactly like Hollywood material. You know, I'm really glad you said that because, well, two things. One is I was a finance major and my goal was to go to Wall Street. I mean, that was since I was maybe 16. And so I have this really interesting, I think, insider's view on, on why people want to do that. It turns out when I graduated, I knew I hated New York City, and I hate working 40 hours a week, let alone 100. <laughs> so, I mean, that's the truth. But people have this view and this fantastic idea of it, and it's just not the case. If you're working 100 hours a week or 80 hours a week like one of our good friends does, that leaves little time for life. Right, exactly. I mean, it's it's an incredibly taxing work environment. And of course, these people are being paid lots of money. And so it's hard to feel too sorry for them. But you actually like, it's hard to understand unless you actually talk to these eight people that I as I did for three years that it really destroys any semblance of normalcy in their lives. I mean, part of what I heard was that, you know, 
basically it's impossible to plan anything because not only are you working 100 hours a week sometimes, but you don't know when those 100 hours are going to come up. And since you're, you're a client service business, you know, your boss can call you up at 3 a.m. on Christmas and say, you know, I need changes to this Excel spreadsheet by 9 a.m. And you have no choice but to go uh, back to the office and do it. So one of the, the eight young bankers told me, he said, you know, what kills you isn't the hours, it's the lack of control of the hours. So I think that creates a lot of anxiety and, and makes these people a lot more sort of on edge than they would be otherwise. What did you find was the driving force for them? You know, if Wall Street isn't what it's portrayed to be in the movies, what were these eight bankers doing? I mean, were they trying to just move up the ladder? Were they doing it for money? Was it pressure from parents, that type of thing? What did you see normally from these eight? Well, what shocked me was that I assumed that everyone came to Wall Street for the money. Um, and that actually turns out not to be the case for for some people. I mean, of the eight, there were certainly several who, you know, who had come for the money, who, you know, needed to pay off, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in student debt, who, you know, wanted to help their families. But more of them were just sort of confused during college. They didn't, you know, they didn't exactly know what they wanted to be when they grow up. Um, they didn't have, you know, they weren't sort of phenomenally talented at acting or sports or anything that would lead sort of naturally into a career. And so banks show up to these colleges, these Ivy League schools mostly and, and other top colleges, and they say, you know, just come to us for two years. These are two-year jobs. We'll teach you everything you need to know. You can be an English major or a history major or an econ major, and, um, and we will get you set up. And you only have to do it for two years and you'll make good money and you'll get a prestigious stamp on your resume. And so a lot of seniors and juniors at, at these schools just, I mean, they see this as being sort of a safe option. Um, and it's certainly safer than going out and trying to create your own job or do a startup or something like that. And I think for a lot of people, it's that, it's, it's the ability to take risk off the table um, by going to Wall Street for two years that sort of makes it attractive. You know what's funny? I, I have this written down. We interviewed a, a guy named Lawrence Krauss. He's this one of the smartest guys in the world. He's, he talks about other planets and he's in all that crazy stuff. And he said one of the good things to come out of the financial collapse is perhaps all the good students wouldn't go into finance. And, okay, I thought, okay, that's kind of selfish on his part. But then he said you've got all these kids that are saying – I can become an investment banker on Wall Street with, frankly, not needing to know a lot. I have to work long hours, but there's not the same intellectual baggage required to be able to do it. And he mm -hmm. said, you know, why should I take a degree in engineering or science when I can make a killing on Wall Street? And I, I think that kind of parallels what you're saying in a sense. I mean, what is your thoughts on that quote? Well, I think it's true. I mean, I think for many years, Wall Street was this incredible siphon of talent um, and it, there was sort of almost a generation of people who became investment bankers by accident you know they, they had gone to Harvard um, and majored in art history and um, and Goldman Sachs came along and said you know just do this for two years and then they agreed to it and they got stuck you know they they never left and so that happened for many, many years. And I think it was almost a function of just sort of the banks being really good at recruiting 
and people, you know, and you know, top colleges not giving students the sense that they had a lot of marketable skills when they left. And I think that's changed now. I think over the course of the three years that I spent following these people, um, the sort of the atmosphere changed around Wall Street recruiting. So now if you look at the data coming out of Harvard or Princeton or Yale, um, there are fewer students going to, into finance and more students going into tech. And I think that is a direct result of the financial crisis because I think people are now starting to sort of question um, you know, am I going to get stuck? Do I want to be a Wall Street banker for the rest of my career? I think the, the 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 sales pitch for the banks has gotten a lot harder because they now not only have to convince people to spend two years, you know, making a, making a lot of money and, and working incredibly hard, but they have to do that in an environment where banks are seen as sort of being evil. Mm-hmm. And, um, and no one wants to feel like they're going to work for an evil company. How did the the specifically the eight that you kind of followed around for a while? How did they deal with that the the view of banking, the kind of bastardization of the entire industry? How did they respond to that? Well, they they didn't like it. I mean, I think that's a that's a pretty like surprising thing too. Is that I you know I didn't expect that Wall Street would be filled with sort of introspective you know people. But I I say of the eight, most of them were hugely affected by this. I mean, if you're if you're a CEO who's 50 years old and making millions of dollars a year, you might not care what people think about you on the outside. But if you're 22 and, you know, you're you're 6 months out of college and a lot of your friends are, you know, non-bankers, if maybe they're in the occupy movement, maybe they maybe they hate banks with a passion. And so for them, it's a lot more socially isolating to be uh, a banker. And I think it's probably, um, you know, from what I saw, it was a huge factor in a lot of their disillusionment was not being able to feel good about what they were doing on a daily basis because either there were protesters outside their office or, you know, they felt self-conscious about saying that they were bankers or that it just wasn't as fun anymore um, to be part of this world. It was, you know, it had a stigma that it didn't have before 2008. You use the word disillusionment, and I think I really want to get your take on that from their perspective specifically, because oftentimes when we think of bankers, we think of Wall Street, you're right. We think of the 30-year-old millionaire or the 50-year-old, you know, almost billionaire, whatever it might be, uh, but we don't think about often what it takes to get there and really what goes into it. And at that young age, how impressionable and still youthful we are. I mean, we don't have a, a strong sense of self. So what does it do to the psyche to be thrown into these long hours, these pressures, this money, the drugs, whatever it might be? Well, I think it, it creates some cognitive dissonance. And I think part of that is has always been true on Wall Street. I mean, Wall, joining Wall Street is like joining uh, a cult. It's like you, you, they, they want to sort of strip out your own views and replace them with theirs. And so this happens slowly, but it happens. Uh, over the course of the first two years, you sort of start to think like, uh, like a Wall Street person. And so there's that going on, but then there's also this pressure from the outside about you know, doing something valuable. And I think to add to that, what happened after 2008 that also created more disillusionment is that sort of the, not only was the prestige gone from Wall Street, but some of the money was gone too. I mean, it still paid very well to be a young banker, but it didn't pay nearly as well as it had before the crash. And the differential between 
working at an investment bank and say working at Google or Facebook or even working at you know a law firm um, wasn't as as big as it had been. So I think a lot of the, the young people that I followed looked out at Silicon Valley, for example, and they said, you know, there are 22 year olds out there making a ton of money and they're happy hmm. and they're working, you know, 60 hours a week instead of 100. And, you know, maybe they're not, uh, maybe their bonuses aren't as big as mine, but they live a much better life and people don't uh, sneer at them when they walk down the street. So it really, I mean, I think it created a ton of tension in these people's minds about not only what they were doing, but what they could be doing instead. And they're out in California, so, you know, nicer climate, too, so that they're, they're happy out there. I mean, exactly. Yeah. I wanted to get into, you mentioned that Wall Street is kind of like a cult. And in your book, you talk about, you know, the fraternity-like parties that happen and the dinner that you were able to, to get into where they were bringing the new Wall Street members in as neophytes. Can you talk a little bit about that fraternity aspect of Wall Street? Sure. So this is uh, this is Kappa Beta Phi, which is an 80-year-old Wall Street society that's made up of basically everyone who's everyone uh, on Wall Street. So former heads of Goldman Sachs and Citigroup, uh, executives from Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, uh, you know, all the big banks are represented there. Um, and it really uh, is sort of like a almost a skull and bones for, for the 1%. It's like, you know, they... they <laughs> have an induction ceremony every year where they have this big dinner at the St. Regis Hotel and they bring in a bunch of new members and to, to haze them and bring them in properly, they, the new members are required to dress up in drag and, uh, and do skits and musical numbers. Um, and a lot of those uh, skits are sort of off-color and offensive. You know, I, I snuck into this dinner. I was the first person, I think, ever to witness uh, this, this event as sort of an outsider. And uh, I mean, what I saw was incredibly offensive. It was, you know, bank CEOs, um, you know, making uh, jokes about the financial crisis and jokes about the Occupy movement and, you know, sexist and homophobic jokes about Hillary Clinton and Barney Frank. And there was a sense that this was all sort of a big joke. So I, I, was, I think that that was probably the most shocking thing I saw during reporting this book is just how debauched and sort of brazenly offensive this uh, this group of Wall Street executives was behaving. That made me wonder when these executives, the current older crowd, when they move on, and I guess it won't be the post-crash employees that are taking the helm, but it'll be ones that have been affected more. How do you think that will change the way that Wall Street operates, or will it change it, or or do you just you do it long enough where you just fill the shoes above you, and now you become the asshole? Right. I, I think there's an element of that, but I, you know, I and I and so I don't know honestly. I mean, right. This, th these young people could all become sort of mini Gordon Geckos, and they could all <laughs> lose their moral bearings. Um, my hope is that they won't. I mean, I, I I think there's some evidence to show that today's Wall Street actually um, does care more about things like like image and respectability people want to you know be pillars of the community when it's sort of the old the old notion of bankers as being a sort of a respectable profession i think there are a lot of people on wall street who would like to get that back um so if you look at even who's in the, the kappa beta phi group what's what's almost more interesting to see is who's not in it it's not people like Jamie Dimon and Lloyd Blankfein. It's not the people who are running these huge 
institutions where tons of junior employees work. And so I think the junior employees who are coming up today are getting an example of A, what it's like to be sort of in the crosshairs, but B, like some of the steps that the, that the industry needs to take if it ever wants to become respectable again. This week's amazing sponsor is Personal Capital. John, I'm going to ask you and the listeners, do you think it's important to know your exact financial status, what all your bank accounts are at any given time? Yes, of course. And now, do you know what's going on with your money? Do you know if I were to ask you right now, where's your money? How much are you paying in fees? Could you pull it all up? How much do you owe, etc.? I could eventually get to it, but it's too many sites with passwords that I don't remember. Exactly. And that's a, that's a bad thing. It's a problem we need to solve. And that's what Personal Capital does. Personal Capital is a free and secure tool that brings all of your accounts and assets onto one single screen on your computer, phone, tablet, in real time with intuitive graphs. It also shows how much you're paying in fees and how to reduce those fees so it can save you money. This sounds like exactly what I need. What do I need to do? Well, signing up takes just minutes, and it's free if you go to personalcapital.com slash smart people. So head on over there, sign up. It's personalcapital.com slash smart people. It's a free account, and you'll support the show. I'm glad you brought that up because we've had economists, we've had politicians on the show, but we haven't really talked to anybody. We did talk to one guy who used to be a trader. But we haven't talked to anybody that was in your shoes, kind of living it, but from the outside. And so from your unique perspective, how do you feel after doing this about the banks, about Wall Street? I mean, should they be as vilified as they are for many of us? Or should they be slightly vindicated after seeing the softer side of it? You know, I don't, I don't think I, I've changed my mind about Wall Street all that much. I mean, I think the sort of institution of finance still has a lot of problems with it and we need to address those problems through more and better regulation through you know smarter enforcement when people break the law but i think what what did change for me was the sense that this i mean i came to this with basically no financial background i never worked on wall street um, I hadn't taken any economics courses in college. I basically knew nothing. All I knew was what I saw in the movies. And when I walked down the streets of New York, I saw this sort of what I thought was like a monolith of, you know, men in suits. Um, and that was Wall Street to me. And now, uh, now I think I see it as sort of a collection of people um, rather than sort of a, you know, a teeming mass of, <laughs> of sort of homogeneity. And I think that has really helped me sort of uh, figure out how to feel about Wall Street. It's it's not that it's you know, it's not that it's a good industry or a bad industry. It's that it's it's an industry that's run by people. And if you want to understand how uh, Wall Street works, you actually have to like spend some time talking to those people and figuring out what drives them. You can't just look at you know the earnings numbers or the bottom lines. Well, talking to those people is exactly what you did. As we mentioned, you kind of followed those eight individuals around, and that's largely what the book is about. I was hoping you could break it down for us since we it's a different way to communicate on a podcast versus a book. When you first met these eight to the end of it, and some left, some stayed, what kind of was your I'm, – I'm trying to think your, – your kind of big realization or what was the theme – throughout i mean because as you mentioned you were seeing them as individuals not as this big entity so what was how did that feel working with them on such a personal level it was sort of odd i mean if you if you think about it 
they really had no reason to be talking to me. I mean, they not only are all their firms, uh, do all their firms prohibit them from talking to reporters, so they, they were all risking getting fired. But it wasn't like there was any money in it for them. It wasn't, I mean, I, I changed all their names in the book, so it's not as if they're becoming famous as a result of this. There was really no reason for them to talk to me, except for the fact that I think a lot of them, sort of as we spent more time together, grew to sort of view me as like an amateur psychologist. Like <laughs> yeah. I would just, they, they, their lives were so messed up and they were so unhappy and they just wanted someone to listen. And so I think, you know, I got much closer to these people than I ever expected. I mean, one of them gave me his diary and said, you know, feel free to use this. And I, that level of intimacy was something I never expected to get from, from people who are young on Wall Street. And I think it, it, it's a testament to how, to how unhappy they were that they, you know, that they, they, they were just desperate for someone to talk to. I can imagine that. Honestly, I really can. Just somebody to listen. And as, as a reporter and a journalist, you, I, I can guarantee, have a different way of listening than maybe their girl of the week or parents, whoever it might be. In talking to them, did they like anything? I mean, what was the positives that they were dealing with at the time, if any? Well, the, the money was nice. Um, and certainly, I think if you ask them now, even the ones who have left Wall Street would say that they, they're glad for the skills they got while they were there. Um, I think a lot of people feel like even if they hate banking itself, you know, the process of learning about companies and how markets work is useful no matter what you end up doing. Um, and so I think they would all say that, you know, to some extent, they're glad that they, even if it was hell while they were doing it, they're glad that they did it because, you know, it's going to serve them well in what they do in the future. Um, and I think there's an element of, of truth to that. I mean, these are incredibly demanding jobs, but being a demanding job goes hand in hand with, with teaching you a lot. And so I think people do end up uh, learning a lot when they do these jobs. I don't think for a lot of them, you know, the sacrifice was worth it. Um, and so I think, you know, the, the negatives sort of cancel out the positives in some cases. Getting really good at Excel wasn't enough. <laughs> <laughs> you know, believe it or not, many people do not define uh, happiness by being good at Excel. <laughs> it's so funny. Our one buddy that uh, he does mergers and acquisitions in D.C., he, when he uses Excel, he doesn't even need a mouse, which I've never seen somebody do that. It's the weirdest thing ever. And you know, that I learned, I took an Excel boot camp yeah. as part of my uh, my research for this book. It was like a five day Excel tutorial, huh. and that is actually what they teach you. They say if you need to use a mouse, like you are a loser. Yeah, that's crazy <laughs> like, to me. Basically, and and so they you know spend all their time memorizing the shortcuts, um, and that's a mark of being a true Wall Street banker is that you never have to use the mouse in Excel. Oh my gosh, it's so. I mean, I did commercial real estate, and it wasn't nearly like that. But I remember using it and the not you know I had my number little pad thing and I didn't even have to look a lot of times I'm just typing in so many numbers it was just crazy did you get the itch after shadowing these people for so long did you get the itch of you know going home setting up an e-trade or scott trade account and just doing some trading or day trading <laughs> any of that type of stuff or well, did you I, just I am notoriously away? bad at picking stocks like whenever I say buy something the the smart advice is always to sell it um <laughs> So I, 
but and I'm also not allowed to own individual stocks because I report on the market. So uh -huh. I'm uh, I, I was never tempted to uh, start speculating in uh, in in you know micro cap stocks or anything. But I, I do I do think I'm interested in the markets now in a way that I wasn't. I mean I I'm now a uh, you know business and tech journalist and I think um, a lot of what interests me is sort of some of the same stuff that I heard these analysts talking about. Um, you know, it's fun to sort of play with these giant companies and, and um, you know, treat them like, you know, video games, basically, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, spend your time thinking about uh, what happens to the dollar if, uh, you know, if the Russian currency breaks down. And, like, I, I just think these, it's sort of interesting to see the world as a collection of markets and commodities rather than, like, people and communities. Yeah, and I know you mentioned, and I read in your bio and everything, you you cover this market, and you have for a long time. What kind of drove you to journalism in general? A little bit about your background, because it is an interesting field. I mean, I, I think it's it's awesome. I, I wish I could do it, you know, just learn stuff and then write about it and get paid for it. So how'd you get to that that level where you could, you know, write this amazing book, and you've written another book? Well, I wrote my first book, and it was on a very different topic, uh, and I wrote that during college, and um, that was about religious evangelical Christian university in Virginia that I sort of spent a semester at, and so I, I was just fascinated. I think part of what drove me to do that was just wanting to learn more about this culture that I had no idea about, and I think that's some of the same thing that drove me to the second book is like, you know, being a journalist is is a great job for someone who's just like has a lot of questions. And I think to the extent that I'm paid to be curious, I think it's it's probably the best job for me. And so I think what got me started was just feeling like, okay, uh, I'm really curious about these things. I could keep wondering about them with very little information, or I could go out and sort of investigate myself. And so I think that's been a real um, source of empowerment is just feeling like, yeah, if I if I feel like I don't understand Wall Street, like I should just throw myself in, put myself among um, you know among people who work on Wall Street and and learn from them. You know, it's funny you mentioned your last book. I I didn't plan on talking about it too much, but it's just so funny. One of our best friends is from Lynchburg. I dated a girl for almost all of college that was from Lynchburg. I've been there a bunch. They have that southern accent and they talk about jerry falwell like you don't know who jerry falwell is what's wrong with you right. um and then obviously liberty university I, I mean i know it's something we could talk about for an hour but was that just the most bizarre experience ever it was i mean it was it was at up to that point the strangest thing that had ever happened to me and i think probably a lot of the reason why is because i grew up with basically no religious background at all and and my parents are like secular liberals, and I went to you know all sort of left-leaning schools. So going to Jerry Falwell's school uh, for a semester was like you know dipping in. Uh, it's like when in those in in those sort of those Asian-style bathhouses when you go from the like the hottest water possible <laughs> to the coldest water possible. Uh, so it was, it was sort of like that, but for my brain. Um, and and so I, I think that was. Uh, hugely strange, but also sort of in this, in some of the same ways as Young Money uh, taught me to sort of view Wall Street bankers through the lens of being people rather than sort of stereotypes. I think the same thing kind of happened to me at, uh, at Liberty. 
Yeah, and for those that don't know, the, the book we're talking about is The Unlikely Disciple, A Sinner's Semester at America's Holiest University. Uh, it's really interesting. We'll link to that as well. But I just had to ask you, given uh, the amount of time I've spent in Lynchburg, and it's just interesting. interesting yeah, it's stuff. a wild place. It really is. It really is. So kind of one of the last things I want to ask you, getting back to Young Money, for I guess a lot of our audience is younger, in college, or even young adults still thinking about what they want to do. What is your advice in general? I mean, not specifically to those thinking about finance, but what you've learned, I know you have uncovered so much as to what people enjoy, what they don't enjoy, what they perhaps should be working towards, what money means in the scheme of a profession and life. You know, let's tap into that psychologist you you have, that degree you've earned. <laughs> well, basically... Um writing this book made me want to go to every like Ivy league college in the country and just like give students there a hug and, ju <laughs> and just say like, because despite the fact that these are some of the most talented young people in the world, um, despite the fact that they have every advantage and that they could basically write their own ticket after they graduate, mm -hmm. these people are incredibly insecure. They leave college feeling like, okay, I haven't learned anything valuable. I'm never going to get a job. I'm going to be a failure. And I think that's why a lot of them for a long time ended up on Wall Street is the sense that there wasn't anything else that they were really capable of doing. And I, I just th I think that's like such a dangerous and misguided philosophy. And I think you know, a lot of it is rooted in sort of college's failure to like give people what they feel are useful skills. But I think it's also just a function of sort of high achieving psychology of young people. So I just, I want to go to like Harvard and tell everyone there, you know, you really like, if you want to be an archeologist, like go be an archeologist and like, you will be great. Um, you don't need to go to Goldman Sachs first, unless you really want to, unless you really want to be a banker, uh, go do what you're passionate about because you are so far ahead of the competition that, I mean, you, you will almost certainly succeed in whatever you end up doing. That's such fantastic advice, and it made me realize, because I didn't go to an Ivy League school, so just getting a decent job was like, hey, I made it. But um, for those that do, they have these high aspirations, and then when the time comes, they probably think, okay, I have to either become a, a high-ranking politician, I have to make you know, six figures directly out of school, or I have to start the next Facebook. And if I don't do any of those... I failed and I'm regressing at the young age of 21. Totally. And I, and I think it's, it's ludicrous. I mean, it's a, it's this sort of mass delusion that like, you know, everyone who's successful starts off hitting a home run when they're 22. And I think probably, you know, that there's a lot of explanation, you know, that's probably a whole nother half hour conversation about <laughs> why that, why that has happened. But I think the effect is that it, it creates a lot of fear in people who are just coming out of college. And I think for a long time that fear drove people onto Wall Street. And I think to the extent that people are getting a little bit bolder and a little bit more confident now, uh, I think that's a really good thing. I really, I just really appreciate you being on the show. Kevin, the, you know, the book's incredible. 
Uh, it's wildly successful. So congrats on that. Thank um, you. you know, as John and I were talking to you before the interview, you were just on the daily show, which almost every author we talked to is like, yeah, hopefully John Stewart will give me a call soon. So you already <laughs> got that call. So congrats. But I can tell it's because in my opinion, you're not writing the thing that everyone else is writing. You're not writing how to be a CEO. You're not writing the people that do drugs on wall street. It's like, let's take the human view of this really interesting, you know, journey and, and let's tell it. So recommend it to all our listeners. We'll put a link on smartpeoplepodcast.com. Um, where else do you write? I mean, do you, do you tweet a lot? Can people kind of find you and keep up with you? They can. I tweet at, at Kevin Roos, R-O-O-S-C. My website is kevinroos.com. And I'm, a, I'm by day, I'm a, I'm a staff writer for New York Magazine, so they can find my stuff there. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much, Kevin, and uh, congrats again on an awesome book. Thanks for having me. All right. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with Kevin Roos. Please, please, please head over to iTunes and leave a rating for us if you enjoyed the show. Head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com as well. You can find all kinds of great stuff over there, blog posts, information on sponsors, contact us, form, all that good stuff. Yeah, we uh, our sponsors are giving deals out left and right. So smartpeoplepodcast.com slash sponsors. And you can see you can get a couple percent off here, a free thing there, and support the show. It's really the best way for you guys to let us know you care. Or an email works. That's the most important thing is it's supporting the show. You know, we, we were just talking about how much time we've been putting into this. Yeah. And, and now we're seeing a good return from our sponsors and all that good stuff. It's really exciting for us. And you guys are to thank for that. So thank you very, very much. And check out the guests we've had on recently. Gosh, it's been cool. I mean, we're getting some top-notch people. And we got how many more? Seven in the hopper already? Oh, at least seven, yeah. So thanks again, guys. Tell a friend. Enjoy the conversations. Keep it smart. Keep it here. Keep it here.